welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. I bring greetings from your fellow uh, Diocese of Christ Our Hope Church, Church of the Redeemer in Greensboro. Um, it's a great gift to get to worship with y'all this morning. Um, Steffi and I thank God for you and, and your ministry here in Winston-Salem. Uh, as Chris mentioned, we are preparing to move to Spain in order to start a ministry of hospitality, uh, a hostel, where we will host pilgrims who are walking the way of St. James, or the Spanish word for it is the Camino de Santiago. Uh, of the hundreds of thousands of people who walk this ancient path every year, many are in a place of, of seeking and, and yearning for God. And so we're going over there to create a place so that we can share the gospel with p- people who are staying with us for the night. Um, so I hope you'll, you'll come to lunch or talk to us afterwards t- to learn more. Uh, right now, we need to be attentive to God's word. Um, if you're visiting for the first time this morning, you uh, may not know that Father Ben and Father Chris have uh, been preaching through the final book of the Bible, Revelation, during this Easter season. Um, Revelation, or if we use the Greek word for it, apocalypse. You'll hear Revelation referred to as apocalyptic literature, not in the sense that it's revealing some mysterious future. No, no. Uh, That's fortune-telling. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic in the sense that it is revealing through images and and sort of uh, metaphorical scenes the spiritual realities that are at work right now behind the people and, and entities we see at work in this world, behind the news that we read, behind the history that we read. So as we look back at where we've been, at where you've been the last few weeks, I'm a visitor here, um, and as we look at John's conclusion to this book, The final chapter of the Bible. I want to talk about what this book is doing as a whole. Uh, If you have a a Bible in the pew in front of you, I invite you to turn really close to the end. Uh, We'll be referring to Revelation 22 quite a bit. Um, There's a lot going on in this whole book in Revelation, but I want to focus on three big elements that are at work here. One, I think what John is trying, striving to do in the book of Revelation is to re-mystify the familiar, to re-mystify the familiar. Two, John is creating a strong sense of urgency, strong sense of urgency. And three, John is giving the gospel to a community that is under pressure. So what do I mean re-mystify the familiar? Uh, Eugene Peterson in his book, Reversed Thunder, highly recommend that book, quotes W.H. Auden, the poet, in, in relation to the book of Revelation. Auden is describing the expectations we have for poetry. Uh, listen to what he says. Firstly, it must be a well-made verbal object that does honor to the language in which it is written. Secondly, it must say something significant about a reality common to us all, but perceived from a unique perspective. The book of Revelation, Peterson continues, meets both of these demands. It is well-made, 
Its complex structure is carefully crafted and commands the wonder and admiration of all who study it. And it takes the reality common to us all in the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and presents it in the unique perspective of the end, the fulfilled completion of all the details and parts of salvation. So John turns his vision of heaven into poetry by describing these images that are at times beautiful, at times terrible. At times they're perplexing, but at times they inspire hope. But the one thing we can't do with these images, we can't brush them off as familiar. We haven't seen many pictures like this. Uh, And yet I would contend that the book of Revelation actually contains very little new information. There are no events or characters in this book that should surprise us. Uh, As Peterson says, here in the images of Revelation, we have reality, the gospel of Jesus Christ presented to us from the heavenly perspective, from the end. There's nothing new here, but it's a unique perspective that engages our imaginations as a way to reach our hearts. In our day of systematic theologies and and statements of faith, which are good things, by the way, don't hear me saying I don't like those, I own some. Um, It's easy to have a faith that makes sense in our heads, but rarely, if ever, penetrates our hearts. It's easy to know the points that we have to know to say we're a member of a church. But in the hectic nature of our lives, the busy days we have at work, the frantic pace of the culture that we're living and breathing every week, our hearts so easily become hardened and calloused against the power of the truths of our faith. Compared with the constant stream of entertainment that's always in our pockets, these truths can begin to seem dim and shabby, boring by comparison. And that's why we need this book of Revelation. Uh, We need these images. We need them to get past our busyness blinders, to to jog us out of our our apathetic comfort with the truths of, of the gospel, and to sharpen our imaginations into something that will make us holy people. So I want to do some imagination review from where y'all have been in the sermon series for the last few weeks. And just to clarify, when I use that term, imagination, I'm not talking about fairy tales, make-believe, though those are fun too. I'm talking about the human capacity to picture the good life. I'm talking about the human capacity to envision something that engages our hearts. So let's look at how Revelation revitalizes our imagination Those of us who've been in church all of our lives know that that Jesus, the Son of God, became human, gave himself up to die on the cross, then rose again and ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. We know that. We say it every week in the creed, right? (laughs) By his death, he accomplished victory for us. But how do we picture such a reality, victory through death, when it runs so counter to the grain of our culture. We read Revelation 5. The kingly lion of Judah, we sang about this this morning, he is worthy to open the scroll to enact God's plan for the world, his plan of salvation. And yet when John turns, he says, I saw a lamb standing as though slain, a sacrificial animal 
standing in victory and strength, but with the posture and mark of having given his life. Seven horns and seven eyes, all power, all knowledge. Father Ben preached on that a few weeks ago. Uh, The point is, Jesus Christ, who died for you, has all power and knowledge and authority in the universe. When you read news uh, and and hear about the the Christians around, around the world who are suffering, who are being killed for their faith, read Revelation 7. These are not merely casualties in a conflict between two worldviews that if we could just talk things out and get along, they they wouldn't have to happen. No. They are the ones who have come through the great tribulation and are now on the other side in victory, wearing the pure white robes. We don't wear these just because they look cool. Wearing the pure white robes that are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Because of Jesus' death and sacrifice, they are receiving eternal comfort and joy. When you pray, and when you wonder if God is hearing you, when you have that nagging doubt, I have this too. It's not just something that you know weak, weak Christians have. We're all weak, okay? I'm weak. Uh, when you have that nagging doubt, think, am I just thinking or saying these words to an empty room? Is this just some therapeutic exercise? Uh, when you don't get an answer after one single day or a week and you think, well, maybe the answer is no or maybe I'll just stop. Clearly God has better things to do. Read Revelation 8, starting at verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. God collects. He hears every prayer of all the saints, every single one. And he enjoys them, like the smell, the perfume of burning incense. And God acts through our prayers with great power, like thunder and earthquakes. Our prayers matter, all of them. So if you have a concern, I encourage you, pray during communion. There's prayer ministers that will be at the front and the back. Pray. If you haven't prayed for something in a while, but it's still on your heart, Open that conversation back up with God and pray. When you're at the total end of your strength, when you weep from grief or regret, remember Revelation 21. We know there will be joy in heaven. We read, you know, we know this, right? We know that there won't be any more sadness. But the image of our Savior Jesus lovingly wiping away all tears once and for all, that's what will touch our hearts. So I urge you, study the book of Revelation. Meditate on these images. These are a great blessing. And they make the truths that we hold come alive when we get comfortable with them or when we get distracted from them. So John is is re-mystifying the familiar. He's also creating a strong sense of urgency. As I said in the beginning, we must be attentive to what's in this book. How could we not be? The book of Revelation cannot be ignored. As the introduction to the book states, 
This is urgent stuff, right? Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The time is near. We read something something similar this morning. Uh, Chapter 22, verse 10. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of the prophecy in this book, for the time is near. We might put it this way in, in our day and age. Don't even lick the envelope because these words are going to be read right now. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things, Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. So there's no escaping the urgency of this message. Even if the mere words aren't enough, here we have these images, again, that are really urgent. Um, so this last week, I, I saw the new Godzilla movie, and these movies are some of my favorites. Uh, ever since I was a kid watching the, the movies from the 60s, you know, where the, the guys in the rubber suits are fighting, um, Godzilla movies have always been this sort of guilty pleasure for me. And that's because they're silly, right? They're so fantastic and just far from real life. They're just pure campy fun. That said, there's one element in every single Godzilla movie I've ever seen, and I've seen most of them. Um, there's one element that's pretty realistic. Anytime a mountain explodes or a thunderstorm strikes or a nuclear reactor gets destroyed or a giant monster comes out of the ocean, people have the same reaction. They run and they scream and they look for a way to get safe. Even if you're not a fan of these movies, you have to admit they get that right. So <laughs> we have these, these poetic images in Revelation that are just as urgent. We get a dragon. We get monsters rising up out of the ocean. We get bright armies riding on fiery horses. We get plagues. We can't ignore what these images represent. They are deadly serious and they demand our attention. And that's why you have that, that warning that we read this morning in verses 18 and 19 saying, don't change the words of this book. Don't add to them. Don't subtract from them. People need to know all of this in its totality. But behind all these urgent images, uh, I don't want us to miss John's point. See verse 11 that we read this morning. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Now, at face value, this is kind of a weird thing for an evangelist to say, right? (laughs) Surely someone writing with, with such pastoral care wouldn't tell people that repentance is pointless, right? What's he saying here? Well, think about all the images that have come before this verse. We see the gospel going forward, putting to death and destruction the idols that hold people captive. That's what's going on in Revelation 9. It's plagues, just like the ones that God hit Egypt with in order to set his people free. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth from the mouths of his servants like flames of fire that put to death the idols of our, that rule in our country, in our cities, and in our hearts. And these words free people from captivity. We see by the Lamb's victory on the cross, the dragon, that ancient serpent Satan who has been the enemy of our race from the beginning. We see him being defeated once and for all and at last removed from all possibility of affecting or harming God's people. We also see human civilization that opposes God 
and his people portrayed as a seductress who inspires the worst in human nature and is drunk on the blood of Jesus' martyrs. And at last, human civilization will be judged as well. So when John says, let the evildoer still do evil, I don't think what he's saying is that repentance is impossible or pointless. He's speaking to Christians, remember, those who are part of the church. What he's telling them is, is if these images don't make you want to run the other way, if seeing the dragon for who he really is doesn't make you want to wage war against him, if seeing that seductress of of comfort and cultural assimilation uh, doesn't seeing that seductress drunk on the blood of Jesus' martyrs, if that doesn't make us want to turn away and take the straight and narrow way of Jesus, if, if understanding, truly understanding the gospel of Jesus doesn't lead to repentance from sin or strengthening of faith, there's no other message out there. This is it. This is the message of salvation. So let's stop flirting with, with idols of, of comfort and worldly pre- prestige. Let's, let's read verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. All of us are called to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, to wash our robes so that we can enter God's city by the gates. The walls are impregnable. This is a place that is completely safe. And the gates stand open to all those who wash their robes in the blood of Jesus. So if you would flee from the predators out there in this world, the dogs, the ones who seek power over others, the sorcerers, those who would objectify the human body and strip it of its dignity, the sexually immoral, the murderers, those who would use religious zeal to oppress rather than to set free, the idolaters. If you would flee from their midst, from all the lies that we have to wade through just to know what's going on in the world, wash your robes in the blood of Jesus and enter by the gates. Just a final word on urgency. I think it's easy for us now to get tripped up on the word soon. When Jesus and and the apostles say things like, I am coming soon, or the time is near, it can be a little confusing to those of us who are reading it 2,000 years later. And you'll often hear critics point to these uh, sorts of statements and say, well, clearly Paul and Jesus didn't really know what they were talking about, did they? Uh, But I think really what's going on here is is just a different concept of time. We think about time in terms of minutes and hours and dates on a calendar. Uh, The Greek word for this would be chronos or chronos. I don't know how modern Greek pronounces it. Um, But when we try to put the concept of chronos on on the book of Revelation, Revelation defies it. It, it. It leads to either deception or confusion. A lot of people throughout history, they've tried to put a chronos date on Jesus's return, and they have led others astray from the truth. Or again, they've claimed that Jesus and the apostles didn't know what they were talking about. Deception. Or we simply throw up our hands and we chalk it up as just we don't understand. Confusion. 
we're used to thinking about time in, in terms of chronos, dates and times that we can plan and put on a calendar. Again, Revelation defies our attempts to put Jesus onto a calendar. Um, but the sense of time that Jesus and the apostles have when they talk about soon is kairos. Kairos refers not to the passing of seconds, but rather to a specific era. You may see it written in the Bible as a specific age. Jesus talks about the spirit of this age. The prophets talk about the age to come. It's an era. It's almost more like a place than a time as far as how we think. It's not a deadline that we have to meet. It's not finals that we can put off studying until the night before. Because how easily we procrastinate living out our faith when we think of Jesus' return as a deadline. But if we think of Jesus' statements in the Gospels and, and here at the end of this book in terms of kairos, it actually makes way more sense. Behold, I am coming soon. The kingdom of God is at hand. I am bringing my recompense with me. The time is near. The current age is already being invaded by the age of the kingdom of God. It started with the birth of Jesus. If you've heard the gospel proclaimed, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. If you've heard that message, the age of the kingdom of God has come very close to you. And it's time to choose. Now is the moment. Will you put to death the idolatry of this age, the idolatry of, of your heart, my heart, and enter into the joy that your God has invited you to, the God who died for you? Will you wash your robes in the blood of the lamb and enter into the city by the gates? Now is the time. Th this urgency is beautifully illustrated uh, in, in the episode of Paul's ministry that we can read about in Acts 16. I'll read it for you. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. So Paul sets free a girl who is in bondage, both economically as a slave and spiritually with a spirit of divination. Paul wages war against the dragon. And in the name of Jesus Christ, he has the victory. If there is any doubt that the dragon is an ally with that seductive pool of economic comfort and gain, look at the reaction of the slave girl's owners to this awesome display of the gospel. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hopes of gain, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept our practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So let's not make any mistake. The dragon, corrupt human civilization, they will fight back, okay? Uh, if one or the other is challenged, they will both fight back. 
Verse 24, having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Here's the kingdom of God coming close to all those who were in the prison. It's beautiful. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. Remember how powerful prayer is? <laughs> Remember Revelation 8? Talking about earthquakes? <laughs> and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So here's a man, the Philippian jailer, whose entire life up to now has depended on his ability to execute the commands of his leaders and the people who pay him. I can't help but imagine that his goals went beyond just being a prison warden, that uh, the only way that he could get promoted was by merit. Most likely he had to take a lot of orders that he didn't want to follow uh, for the sake of upward mobility. He was stuck in the political, competitive world of work. But when the kingdom of God comes to his prison, all of his idols, all of his work comes crashing down. And there's no question for him of a deadline. There's no question of making things right before the authorities come to call. He has to make a decision right there. How is he going to be saved? He doesn't have to kill himself to save his honor and his family. With his whole family and household, he joins in with Jesus' death through baptism and enters into joy. When the kingdom of God arrives, it demands a decision. A decision. It is urgent. Third and final point, John is giving the gospel to a community under pressure. This community, this, this new church that is facing the pressure of persecution, the temptation of assimilation, they need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the gospel. And it's summed up in one word, verse 17, chapter Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. At the heart of the gospel is hospitality, God's welcome, his invitation to those who are thirsty for life in him. This is why, by the way, Steffi and I have become convinced that this ministry of hospitality is such an effective way to reach lost people 
who are on the Camino. The Holy Spirit and the bride, the church, offer this welcome to all. Come. The ones who hear the message of the gospel, who receive it, add their voices to God's welcome. Come. We are called to proclaim to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to our workplaces, to our cities, to the nations. Come. Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension all cry out, come. And as the pressure on the church ramps up, as the conflict between the gospel of Jesus and the false gods of this world becomes fierce, then that same word becomes our prayer, our expectation, our sure hope, and our cry. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And we respond, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christ Church, visit us at ChristChurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.